This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. They're just clicking and clicking and clicking, and it's them and this content. They're so vulnerable it is chilling. It horrifies me the idea of a child being alone, exposed to this content, slowly being dragged into an illness. They are fatal diseases. Okay, everybody, thank you for coming to fill in the blanks again. We're talking about something today that I think is critically critically important to the point that I think it may be the number one challenge, the number one crisis that our kids are facing today. We're behind the power curve as adults, whether it's your kids or your grandkids, this is a chance to close that gap. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute when I tell you who our guest is, very special guest. In a recent study, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, CCDH, set out to test TikTok's algorithm. After hearing concerns from parents about what their children are seeing on that platform, now this is a nonprofit organization. They say they set up eight new accounts in the US, UK, Canada, and Australia, and they listed the user as 13 years old, the youngest allowed by TikTok. Now, we know there are younger than that that get on TikTok, but they said, we're going to follow the rules that are set forth as though everyone else does, which they don't. And for the experiment, the accounts briefly watched and liked videos about body image and mental health. And we're going to talk about what this study discovered, what it showed, and why I think it's a perfect example of what's happening right now. You've heard me say a million times, you aren't the only voice in your child's ear, so you better be the best voice in your child's ear. That's not happening. So we want that to really go to the front of your priority list. The guest today is Imran Ahmed. He is the founder and CEO of CCDH in the U.S. and in the U.K., and he is an authority on social and psychological malignancies on social media, such as identity-based hate, extremism, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. And this study that has been done is eye-opening, scarily eye-opening. So, Imran, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on. We've talked before. We've talked about what parents know and don't know about what their kids are doing. I want to talk a little about you so people know where you come from in your approach to this. Why this field? Why did you focus on this in particular? Why are you focusing on this right now? Well, wh why did I get into this in the first instance? The, the truth is, about six or seven years ago, I was working in politics in the UK, uh, in Parliament, working for a member of Parliament, and we saw two things happening simultaneously. We saw a sudden growth in anti-Semitic, so anti-Jewish hatred on the left in the UK. 
And we saw simultaneously, if people may remember, there was a referendum on the European mm. Union and Brexit in the UK. Right. And my colleague, my friend, Joe Cox, who was a member of parliament, she was a mom of two beautiful kids. And she was um, shot, stabbed and beaten to death by a, a guy who'd been radicalized online with conspiracy theories and lies. And it really opened my eyes that, you know, we'd been get in 2016, we were just getting on with our lives. We thought that the that social media was just something online. But what we'd missed was that it was becoming the main place where we shared information, where we negotiated our values as a society, even negotiated what we called facts. And that a lot of, you know, while social media is great because it connects us all, it also connects really bad people to us all. It connects people who are willing to spread lies, hate, disinformation knowingly. Um, and it made us start thinking, well, what else is it changing beyond creating extremism? Is it changing um, our ability to respond to pandemics? Is it changing our ability to respond to, um, to extremism? And is it changing our ability to parent effectively? When you talk about this guy that attacked Joe Cox and took her life so tragically, he was radicalized online. Let's think back before the proliferation of the internet. Somebody could be living out in some rural community in the UK or the US, and they may have these wild theories. They may have these conspiracy theories, but they're pretty isolated. Yeah. But now, being on the internet, those theories get oxygen. And other people that might have even a thread of that, they start interacting and they start feeding off each other and they grow exponentially. What we found was, was, it w was exactly that, but there was a disturbing additional fact that we realized that disinformation, that hate, actually gets an advantage on those platforms because there, there is no level playing field. In fact, the platforms we realized in, in the way that they present information, they don't give you a timeline. What they give you is a artificially sorted list of content based on how likely it is that you will engage with it. So they are looking for something that the key thing that they look for is engagement. Are people writing back? Are they quoting it? And they found that hatred gets people who, not just people who agree, but people who vehemently disagree, engage with it. So what was happening over time was lots and lots of hate was getting engagement. Tolerant content, normal people who just want to, you know, get on by in life. They want to they want to they want to just live their lives. Their voices were being quietly silenced. And in fact what it was doing was was amplifying that hatred into billions of news feeds, normalizing those ideas, making it look as though our world is more brittle, more hateful more full of lies than it was before. And that, over time, has had a really devastating impact on our societies. Uh, and let's talk about how that's happening, because I think people hear this and they don't realize what's actually happening. I've talked to some people that have broken this down for me. You say those that have some peaceful ideologies, some things that are harmonious, and that doesn't get the heat, the distribution that hatred does, what that means is this algorithm 
doesn't pick those messages of harmony and tranquility up and push them out to as many people as do the hate messages because those hate messages are clickbait. Yeah. And people click on those, and so they spread, they get more clicks, which means there's more advertising dollars, and people are outraged by that. And it's like, oh, my God, can you believe this? And they click on it, and then they send it to someone else, and they get outraged, and they click on it. And so that spreads while this message here of, hey, have a nice day, doesn't get any heat. There's no emotional charge to it, so it just sits there. It, it's it's exactly that, and what that does over time, and you know, at scale, is it makes us look at. So, that if the lens through which we look at other people's opinions and at society as a whole are these platforms, for better or for worse, you know, these platforms have four point five billion users around the world. They are incredibly influential on our lives. TikTok, for example, is one platform. Two-thirds of American teens use TikTok, two two and three, and they use it on average for 80 minutes a day. That is an unprecedented shift in where we get our information from. And these platforms make the world seem more terrifying, more brittle, more hostile. They make the rest of society seem seem sort of like that, like it's full of enemies. And that that will have an effect on our politics. It'll have an effect on our democracy. Over time, it might make it impossible to sustain democracy because democracy relies on the basic knowledge that we are all in it together. And it's really hard to believe that we're all in it together when social media presents us with fear and hatred constantly. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, I'll tell you something that I learned in the trial work that I did for years in trial sciences. People can say, well, they may see that, but then in the rest of their lives, they realize that's not the case. But something I learned, I would see lawyers that would have some really powerful piece of evidence they were trying to get into the trial, and the judge would not allow it in. And at the end of the day or on a break, the lawyers would look at me and say, we didn't get that in, but the jury knows we had something really powerful. That landed on them. That registered on them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Jurors decide cases based on what they see and hear, not what they don't see and hear. If you didn't get it in, they won't use that in deciding this case three weeks from now. They only use what they see and hear. And what these two out of three kids are seeing and hearing are not the messages of we're all in this together. Let's be reasonable. Let's be 
peaceful and supportive, what they're seeing is hate and conspiracy and all of these things. That's what writes on the slate of who they are. Sure. And look, it's it's about having, I, mean, I, I think it's really important for us to hear lots of opinions. It's really, and obviously it's vital that everyone has the ability to speak. But the question isn't about freedom of speech. This is about freedom of reach. And who's getting the most reach are the most angry, the most hateful, the, you know, disinformation, lies and hatred have been given the advantage in our society. And that that that's like having a diet that's just full of, you know, one food group. It's not a balanced diet and it will eventually lead to pathologies. It will make you ill. And that that information diet of just fear and hate is making our society ill. And it's not just me saying it. Look around you. Look at what's happening in our societies. These kind of weird, you know, f- the, look, try, and, try and remember the last Christmas dinner you had and what it's like sitting there with these really entrenched, angry opinions on two sides. It's damaging our ability to form the, the the consensus, the harmony that's that's a prerequisite for peaceful, prosperous, loving societies, and it's also having an effect, as we know, on on our children, on our individual psychology, because kids are the most vulnerable among us. They are forming their minds, they're forming their neurology, even the pathways in their brain, and when you expose them to that kind of environment, well, that's why we carry out studies like we have recently, because. The truth is what it's doing is literally killing some of them. You just said something that I want to echo and underline that I want parents to hear. I'm talking to parents and grandparents here. These kids that are being bombarded with this, they're in their formative years. Their brains are in their formative years. And our studies are telling us that this actually changes the anatomy of their brains in the neocortex, which is the front part of your brain, which is the executive functions. It's where impulse control, decision-making, foresight, all of the things that have to do with being able to navigate the terrain of life, those are areas that are developing. And we're seeing changes there. We're seeing less volume there in gray matter and the connectivity of white matter. So we're seeing actual anatomical changes that are in a direct correlation with how much screen time they're spending, how much time they're spending with a device, and we know what they're getting from that device. So it's content as well as screen time. So, so there is a really direct link in, in, in analyses that have been done of how much screen time kids spend and mental ill health. And there is a strong relationship between the two. And part of the reason for that is that the diet of information they're receiving online is really one-sided. And some of and it's not curated. In fact, it's it's not curated by human beings with compassion and wisdom, kindness, a, a, a desire to make them full and decent human beings. It's being curated by algorithms, which are ruthless in their single-minded pursuit of only one thing, keeping them on the platform for as long as possible. Addiction. It's, it's seeking to addict them as long as possible to maximize the revenue they can get out of them. And that is having a really severe effect on our kids. It's there's been a ra- radical increase in the number of kids with m- mental ill health, with eating disorders, with self-harming. And 
we know because you and I have talked to people who who've lost their children as a result of these algorithms, and I fear that there will be more unless we actually get control of the, the the greediness and the indifference, the kind of the laziness of the way that platforms are administered today. And what I was trying to say to the families today with the eating disorders is don't let them off the hook by overreaching. Don't overreach and say yeah. you've caused this as opposed to contributed to it with negligence and all that. Having spent my life in the litigation arena, I don't want them to overreach and miss the target completely. Well, look, you and I aren't, we're not trial lawyers. And so we're not sitting there just thinking we've got to present one case. Actually, I think there's there's three sets of people that really need to help us to, to get to grips with this problem. One is parents, right? And there is this, you, you and I were talking about this earlier, that there is this generational gap in awareness of how social media works. So I'm in my mid forties, I'm a young parent. Um, I use Instagram, I use Twitter, I use Facebook, um, but I don't actually know anything about TikTok. It's yeah. my team that have taught me about it because yeah. they're all Gen Zers. Yeah. And, um, and, and we've been encouraging parents. We actually, off the back of the research that we did looking at eating disorders, I wrote a parent's guide with the father of a young girl who took her own life because of content on social media, a guy called Ian Russell, um, which is on our website, counterhate.com slash parents. And it actually goes through how to get that dialogue going, asking kids, what are you seeing online? Helping them to understand why they might be seeing so much content about eating disorders, teaching them about algorithms, teaching them about uh, how to contextualize the information they're seeing. That it's not normal to respond to feeling to the feelings they have when they're in their in their teens in this kind of vital transition to adulthood period of their of their life by restricting their diets to 700 calories, which is what the content they're seeing online is saying, right. or by harming themselves. That, that's not a normal response. That's a dangerous response. There's a second set of people that need to change, and that's the platforms. And we've seen them try so hard to deny initially, then deflect and say, well, it's someone else's problem, and then delay taking action. We need them to start showing some responsibility. And I I would like to believe that we can persuade them to do so through moral argument, but if they can't change through moral argument, there's a third set of people that need to have our backs as parents, as citizens, and that's our politicians. And the truth is that you and I have talked about this before. You know, the last time Congress legislated on regulating internet companies was 1996 in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And it is about time that they legislated again. There was legislation just before Christmas, so in December, just before the holidays in December, that was bipartisan. Marsha Blackburn, the Republican, Richard Blumenthal, the Democrat. They had uh, the Kids Online Safety Act was in Congress. It was signed off by the Senate committees. Mm -hmm. It didn't get pushed to a vote. And that was a real failure of leadership by Chuck Schumer and the Democrats in that instance. But we need... Congress to actually move on this because there is clearly bipartisan concern. There is a massive demand from parents for action. The platforms aren't moving fast enough. It's about time they had our backs. If they look at the kind of data you're generating, it's so chilling that it brings about the urgency that says, look, we need to do something about this right now. 230 was, I think, designed to protect, but now it's created a wall that they're hiding behind. So that's why I thought 
what Matt was talking about earlier, and I was trying to point out, they're not trying to hold them responsible for third-party content. They're holding them responsible for what they're doing with that third-party content through these algorithms. And that's a different lawsuit. Even with 230, they can pursue that. Look, if I wasn't so British, I would have high-fived you when you said that. <laughs> uh, but I am, so I didn't. Um, look, it, it, it's you're absolutely right. And these platforms have evolved being beyond being just a place where a few people comment here and there, which is in 1996, there were no social media platforms. They right. were really legislating for comment sections on news websites. And now we've got these massive businesses with a reach across two-thirds of all human beings which has fundamentally changed the nature of how we communicate as a species. And it's about time that politicians realize the world is changing and it's time for our legislative and regulatory framework to change too. Because when, and my job as, you know, as the chief executive of the Center for Countering Digital Hate is to ensure that the right evidence is put in front of them, that we conduct really rigorous studies. We put them out in the public domain so anyone can challenge them, anyone can see what we've done, but we provide the test for whether or not the system as it, as, as it exists now is working in, in the right way. And across so many dimensions, whether it is disinformation, hate, or it is protecting our kids, the system is failing now. We need change, and we really can't wait too much longer. No, and you mentioned Ian, who is a wonderful guy and an articulate individual and obviously such a loving father. And if it can happen to someone that dialed in and tuned in, it can happen to anybody. I want to come back and talk about the parent guide that the two of you have created. But before we do, let's talk about this study that you created. We talked about it a little bit before. Describe the study and what you found. We took TikTok, this new platform that most people don't know much about. It's um, really erupted out of nowhere. In the last couple of years, it's picked up you know, hundreds of millions, billions of users around the world. Two-thirds of American 14 to 24-year-olds now use TikTok. They use it for around, on average, 80 minutes a day. And of course, most parents have got no idea what's on there. So we said, okay, let's, let's set up accounts as a 13-year-old girl. We'll set them up in four different countries. We'll set up um, and in the UK, US, Australia, and Canada. And we knew as well that a lot of parents were saying to us, you know, in private conversations, look, I am kind of, you know, there was that old public service announcement, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? And they were saying, look, it's 10 p.m. I know where my children are, but I don't know who they're with. Because these platforms connect them to content from people I don't know who they are. I haven't had the chance to vet it. I haven't had the chance to talk to them about it. And they said, well, can you tell us what sort of content they're getting? What we found was incredibly disturbing. The TikTok algorithm within 2.6 minutes, so less than three minutes, had started feeding content uh, uh, which promoted self-harm to these 13-year-old girls. Within eight minutes, it was promoting content which was advocating, which was saying it's okay to have an eating disorder. I mean, I it's really hard to sort of to describe it because that sounds so innocent, doesn't it? Saying it's okay to have an eating disorder. I'm saying stuff like saying you should eat 700 calories a day because that way you can have a nice body like me. And 700 calories a day, you and I know, is a starvation diet. It will, 
it will kill a child quickly. Their organs will shut down. They'll get right. dehydrated. They'll start burning muscle. Their brains won't develop properly. They can't think effectively. They will become even more confused and disoriented and more vulnerable. The, 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 really, the, the really disturbing finding that we had from this study, however, was this. We set up two accounts in each country, remember I said. One of them had a normal girl's name like Lauren or Sarah. The second one would have a similar name, but with we added the characters lose weight. So it was something like Susan lose weight. And what we found was for that account, that in only that one sense signaled vulnerability, it got 12 times the amount of self-harm content as the normal account and got three times the amount of overall harmful content as the normal account. Now, what that indicates is that it's likely the algorithm is, is identifying vulnerability, saying, you know what's addicted people that have names like this before? this kind of content and is shoveling them more. The algorithm is doing what any algorithm programmed to keep people on platform for as long as possible would do. It's trying to find any sort of indication as to the psychology of the user and then saying, here's what we know is addicted people like that before. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, so people understand, because commonsensically, people would say, well, why would they give them self-harm information? Why is that going to keep them clicking more? Describe the emotional energy that goes into that that turns that into clickbait. Let me give you an example. The, the video might start with an, an aspirational image of a, of a slim young woman um, in, a, in a beautiful outfit. And then, and so people start watching it. They're, they're, they're drawn in by the imagery, but then very quickly it, it starts showing, you know, lines around the waist saying, if you want a waist as small as mine, what you need to do is have a 700 calorie diet. The thing is that the algorithm is looking for how long people stay on it. So you're drawn in by this aspirational image of a beautiful young woman. But what happens is very quickly, it starts to show you content about eating disorders. Now the, the algorithm knows that this person is vulnerable to that kind of content and it starts giving them more. Another example would be some self-harm content. So it'll be a picture of a razor blade with really emotional music um, and the, around the razor blade slowly appear the words, um, I miss the touch of you on my skin. That's the one I remember that makes me, um, it makes me, it, it chills me to my bone to think of a child seeing that and knowing the music, the image, which is so arresting. It's so, you know, it's kind of in that period in life when you are a little bit theatrical, your hormones are going bonkers and you, you kind of, you, you, you are, you are starting to, empathize with pain, you're starting to realize that the world might not be perfect. And it's when kids becomes, you know, when they listen to grunge music, well, that's what I listened to when I was that age, you know, you listen to grunge music and you sort of walk around feeling surly because you, you're feeling like an adult for the first time. And it is giving them content that is saying it's good to cut yourself. That's how it works. It is so insidious 
And the platforms should be finding that content and going, crumbs, this is bad. Let's delete that content. And let's definitely, at the very least, even if they're not deleting, let's not promote it to 13-year-old girls who we know it might damage. The thing is, it's important to put yourself in that person's shoes, that person's frame of mind, and picture a 13-year-old girl that is searching for something because she's on there, and she's maybe alone in her room, maybe doesn't have the best life, because we do know that one of the things that helps to inoculate those from getting addicted is if the other parts of their life, maybe they're in choir, maybe they're on the volleyball team, maybe they're active with friends and they have a lot of balance in their life, which kind of inoculates them to that. But those that are kind of lonely, maybe they're marginalized, they don't really have a peer group, they don't fit in well, then this becomes their reality and they're alone with that content. It's kind of a precursor to, for example, eating disorders, because we know with a bulimic, for example, one of their goals, and I've had them tell me so many times, they get to a point where all they want is to be alone with their disease. Just leave me alone. Let me go back in my room. I don't want to go out. I don't want to do anything. I want to get home as fast as I can and go back where you leave me alone with my disease. So here they are back in their room, on their phone or their tablet or whatever, and they're just clicking and clicking and clicking, and it's just them and this content. They're so vulnerable, it is chilling. There is a reason why my me and my 20 staff who are across New York, Washington, D.C., and London do this work. We look at this content because we can think of what it must be like for those young people who are starting to realize their position in society, starting to think about boys if they're, you know, about sexual relationships and their physicality, their body is changing. They're extremely vulnerable. It's a terrifying, terrifying process. Your body changing fundamentally, hair sprouting where you didn't expect it before. They're very aware of themselves. And it, it horrifies me the idea of a child being alone, exposed to this content slowly being dragged into an illness. And, you, you know, we talked about this earlier today. It's really difficult to treat these sorts of illnesses. You know, they are fatal diseases. Eating disorders yeah. are fatal. They're one of the biggest causes of, of one of the biggest uh, causes of, of, of young mortality in the United States today. And it's, it's really important that we as society pull together to do everything we can. The problem is that, you know, you, me, parents, we're the sort of the, the push for compassion, for kindness in these kids' lives. But we're, we're actually up against a kind of an opponent for the first time. And the opponent is the greed, incompetence and laziness of these enormous multi-billion dollar companies. And it's a really disproportionate battle. I mean, that's I, I am so so grateful to you for giving me the chance to talk about this to a bigger audience. But the truth is that the platforms in reality, you know, they are outspending us, outgunning us in Washington, D.C. and on the airwaves. Well, their lobbyists are spending tens of millions of dollars and the parents, nothing. 
Because they're not organized. The the two biggest lobbyists in Washington used to be Philip Morris, the uh, the tobacco company, and ExxonMobil. Um, and now it's um, Google and well, it's it's big tech in short. Yeah. Um. And and that's a real problem for us. So we are having to to fight against these big vested interests as well to protect children, to protect society, to protect democracy, because that's what's at stake. It's lives. Yeah. Exactly. And. You're finding with these accounts in four countries with two different names, one showing vulnerability, one just the name. You found self-harm content within 2.6 minutes, then eight minutes for eating disorder. What else did you find? What we looked at next was so that that piece of analysis is, I guess, what you'd call qualitative analysis. So it's taking a relatively small sample size and then saying, well, wh what sort of content are we seeing? And we recorded all of this content, by the way. So the, we recorded the first half hour of what's called the For You page. And then a researcher went through and, and categorized what's each video categorized. Is it harmful? What sort of harm? But then we looked specifically at eating disorder content. We found a series of hashtags that linked together the eating disorder content. Some of them had, you know, really obvious hashtags like pro-anorexia. Some of them had slightly coded things. So they often had the, the letters ED, eating disorder. But one was like hashtag ED without the Sheeran. So it's referencing the popular singer Ed Sheeran. Um, what we found, what we, what we then did was look at the videos that were on those hashtags and see how many views in total they had. Dr. Phil, it was 13.2 billion. More views than there are people on earth. Twice as many as there are people on earth. And that's what was so extraordinary to us. It means the reach of these videos, that's they stunning. are being seen so many times. And how many times do you know, have you had a conversation with your kid about eating disorders, trying to provide them with information about positive body image in the last, say, week? Because I'm telling you, TikTok is outgunning you right now by feeding them eating pro-eating disorder, pro-self-harm content. It is a it is an overwhelming wave of malignant content being shoved into our kids' eyes. Yeah, and the answer for a lot of parents, it would have been for me at that age, is none. I had no conversations about it. And then here they are getting bombarded with hundreds and hundreds of videos. And they're produced and they're dramatic and there's music and they're intoxicating. And we, we know that it's not just young girls, by the way. It's young boys who are receiving this content. They're receiving content about body about, about their body images, about what's called bigorexia. So increasingly, there's a lot of content to young boys encouraging steroid use, encouraging you know dangerous bodybuilding techniques that are really bad for a growing body in which you haven't developed your full muscularity, your full bone density, your full physical uh, physical ability. There's also content that's encouraging other types of extremism, stuff that you and I have talked about in the past, things like hatred of women. You know, one of our studies showed that if you set up an account as a 13-year-old boy, within seven minutes, you're being fed content by a guy called Andrew Tate, who's an extremist hater of women online. And so you see this kind of this mirror image to the damage that's being to young girls in young boys as well. Yeah, parents need to maybe look at some of this content because when we're saying hatred of women, I mean, it's very specific. It gets down to grab them by the throat, throw them down, do what you want to do, or they don't think you're a man. I mean, it's teaching young boys, this is how you 
relate to women. This is how you succeed. When we have shown parents what that content is and how they're being taught, this is how to be a man, they stand there just with their mouths open. It's like, are you kidding me? And they had no yeah. idea. Yeah. I, look, I, I, I gave a speech. So uh, I got called by a head teacher recently in a school who said to me that his, his, his class, that his classes were all obsessed with, with this kind of content. And he was really scared. He wanted me to come and talk to them. When, when I spoke to those kids, it was amazing to see to what extent this next generation has been, is being indoctrinated at pace with content that encourages them to believe that a real man hurts women and disrespects them. And that is exactly the opposite of the messages that their parents, their schools, everyone else's society is giving them. The problem is that they're seeing these videos 100, 200, 300 times in a few months. And again, this is an inequality of arms. Like this is an asymmetric battle. The other side is winning because they have control of the information ecosystem, of, of the platforms that are being used to deliver messages to those young people. And that is really scary because it will have an impact. There's an entire generation that are being taught not to love women, not to be able to have strong relationships that are bigger than the sum of the whole, something that you and I both are blessed to have in our lives. They are not being taught that. They're being taught that relationships are a zero-sum game, that someone has to win, someone has to lose, and the way you win is violence. Yeah. And the number of views, the number of young men that are clicking on this and being indoctrinated by it is staggering. Yeah. It's staggering. One of the things that I need to get your take on is when we talk about TikTok and this algorithm, you can't help but get this vision of this dark castle with a bunch of evil people in there wringing their hands in a melodramatic way. And the fact is, that's not the case. If you meet people that work at TikTok, you talk to them, they're moms and dads. If you randomly picked a hundred people out of there, it's almost like they're siloed. These over here in this department don't know everything that's going over in this department. It's not like there is a mission statement that they've all sold their souls to do this. It's almost like the algorithm, the artificial intelligence has been programmed initially and then taken over and gotten sinister on its own. And there are top level people that allow it to continue to drive the content distribution. But my experience of meeting lots and lots of people from these platforms is they can't even explain it. Is it a top-down toxicity? Where's it coming from? I broadly agree with you. And I, I certainly did until a couple of years ago when two things happened. First of all, a whistleblower from Facebook came out who had evidence from their internal network showing that there were thousands of documents available to all staff that showed that they knew the problems. I don't have a, I, I think any business, of course, sometimes things go wrong, right? And sometimes things go wrong in any, in any well-meaning pursuit in life. But my problem is that when you know something's going wrong, 
And when you fail to do something about it, when people ask you and show you the impact of it, when parents say to you know, say my child is dead because of your algorithm, and then you still continue to deny, deflect, delay, to even worse, throw dollars at it, lobbyists at it, rather than do the right thing, then I think you become morally culpable. And I, I fear we are at that point right now. And it, there is actually, you know, I. I, I think that some of those executives have, have seduced themselves into believing that the legal immunity they have under the current laws, Section 230, as you mentioned, the legal immunity they have from any liability for, that, for other people's content on their websites is also a moral impunity for the consequences of what happens with that content. And they don't. Legal does not necessarily mean what, what is true in morality. And they have proven very vulnerable to people like you and people like me who kind of stand up and say, no, you must do better. I, 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 I think we are at a tipping point now where we have to stop giving them the benefit of the doubt. We have to stop being as generous and kind to them as we have been and say, actually, these people, they're kind of not great people themselves. Is it to the point that they're Positioning themselves for deniability is like, don't ask, don't tell, don't read those pages yeah. of documents and just do your job and don't look up and pretend you don't know. Because they're reading the same things we're reading. They are. Um, or they can. The, the, look, I, I think it is a little bit of don't see, you know, don't ask, don't tell. And this sort of age of impunity that they've enjoyed is coming to an end, not necessarily in the United States, but certainly around the world. The European Union, for example, has just created a Digital Services Act that will hold them accountable. If they fail to deal with things like this, they could be fined up to 10% of their global revenues. The United Kingdom, I'm really proud to say that I was the first witness to give evidence to Parliament on a new bill, an online safety bill, which, is, which should be law by April of this year. Just yesterday, the British government announced that they will, or, uh, that they will actually introduce criminal sanctions. So if executives failed to, if you know if if the government identifies a problem uh, like like self harm content if they fail to do anything about it again and again and again eventually an executive could end up in jail for it and i i, I think that is because a lot of a lot of legislators are getting frustrated with these platforms failing to take action when they know the problem and they're being begged by people to do something about it i think part of the thing they hide behind too is what i was saying about not overreaching with the lawsuit for example, eating disorders. We do know that those that obtain with an eating disorder, 70% of them statistically do have trauma in their lives. They do have genetic components. They do have bad role modeling. They do have a variety of things. But if we know that, then so do the platforms. You can't say, well, what's the acceptable casualty rate? It's like if you're putting the content out and you know that 30% of the young women that are going to be reading this, the teens, the preteens, are vulnerable to this or whatever, is that an acceptable rate? Then the answer is not just no, but hell no. You can't put that out there when you know that a portion of your population 
It's not a matter of if, but when they are going to succumb to that. And it's not a matter of it's just there if you search for it. They're force-feeding it to them. Yeah. That, that, that's where it becomes really problematic. And, you know, like that court case that, um, that Matt has, it's really important that we realize that these companies aren't just a neutral platform on which people just write down what they think and everyone can see what everyone's thinking. These are publishing platforms that choose what content wins and what loses. They're publishing platforms. They're making decisions by algorithms. Those algorithms are written by human beings, and they're making decisions as to what the content of the equations, yeah, the mathematics that underpins these algorithms are. And they have chosen to prioritize addictiveness and profitability over safety. They aren't conducting risk assessments. They aren't thinking about vulnerability. And if they do think about vulnerability, well, gosh, they're doing an absolutely terrible job. They're pretty incompetent to run platforms that have such impact, aren't they? Well, I would think so. And I don't want to play boy lawyer here, but I do want to explain this so people that maybe are falling victim to this right now understand. You define negligence as saying failing to do what a reasonable person would do under the same or similar circumstances, but then gross negligence is when you show such a complete and utter disregard for the impact of what you're doing as to rise to the level of intentionality. You show such a complete disregard for the impact of what you're doing that it's as though you could predict it. It was foreseeable. It's the same as if you did it on purpose. So even if you just say they didn't mean to, if you have such a disregard for the impact of what you're putting on your platform, what your algorithm is doing, that, at least in American jurisprudence, is the same as if you woke up and said, I'm going after these vulnerable teens and I'm going to target them with this and cause them to have this problem. Next week on Fill in the Blanks. If parents could see what their kids are seeing, I think that A, they'd be horrified, and B, they would naturally get into a dialogue with them about it. In fact, that is really at the core of our recommendations to parents. 